I'm Jeff Sikinga, Executive Director of the Ashbrook Center, and this is The American Idea, coming to you from Peter Schramm's library in Ashland, Ohio. In this podcast, we explore America's crisis in civic education. Too many people today don't understand the history and principles that make us Americans. So we're here to explore America's history and principles and what they mean for today, what we can learn from them, and how we can restore them to their rightful place in our hearts and minds. We think it's the most important thing we can do as Americans to keep our experiment in self-government alive. So thank you for joining us in this important conversation. You can learn more about Ashbrook and the work we're doing with students, teachers, and citizens at ashbrook.org. Well, I want to welcome everyone to this conversation of the American idea. I'm Jeff Sikinga from the Ashbrook Center, joined today by a very, very special guest, uh, a friend of the Ashbrook Center who has been done events for us. In fact, we had the privilege of being with Brian Kilmeade last spring in Boston to launch our In the Spirit of 76 campaign for American history around the country. Uh, Brian, as many of you know, is co-host of Fox and Friends and also One Nation with Brian Kilmeade. Uh, he is been, uh, he's a veteran journalist, uh, but I didn't know this until I talked to Brian earlier. He was an athlete, I think, who started in sports journalism and then has moved on now to news journalism. Brian Kilmeade, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, no, thanks for having me. And going back to still cover the Super Bowl, major events. Uh, but that's how I got started, doing all sports radio and doing a local sports show and things like that. Um, Brian, uh, as many of you, uh, our listeners know, especially we have so many listeners who love history, has written a number of really, really terrific books. Um, a couple on sports and then American history. Uh, those of you who are listeners probably have seen his book, Andrew Jackson and the Miracle of New Orleans, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers, and of course, the one we're going to be talking about today, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. Uh, I know it's available anywhere you can purchase books. I want to strongly encourage our listeners, if you don't have it already, to get it. It is a terrific read, accessible, comprehensive, historically accurate, and just a great story. Uh, it's a terrific book. Brian, let me ask you just to get us started. Why did you write this particular book? Well, I want to move up chronologically in time after Texas. The big thing is the Civil War, the most written about event in American history. And I thought, Lincoln, the most written about president, how do I do something different? And then you don't want to skip over great Americans that came across at the same time. So I, I thought, um, what have I talked about how they came from nowhere to become the two most significant Americans at the most important time, how they came together uh, briefly, what they could have done had uh, there not been an assassination but what they were already able to do together. So I thought, what if I tell that section of the story? Because I don't believe that you read Carl Sandburg's book or any of these great Linton, Linton, uh, David Blight biography of Frederick Douglass, and you say, oh, I could do better. I can't. So what if I just gave you a slice of, of how they came together and the significance they had in our most important time when we were uh, at a civil war? So that I thought it would made a lot of sense, and they were able to do a special around it. It's on Fox Nation right now, so if people want a primer before you read it about what you're going to get, we kind of brought it to life in, a, in an hour special. It's terrific. 
interesting, especially the, the subtitle to me, Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass, and their battle to save America's soul. Talk a little bit about saving America's soul. What was I mean, the slavery, soul they were trying to save? Yeah, as a, obviously as great a country as we are and were, we weren't perfect starting with having slaves like every continent had slavery. We had it and had it early, and, but it wasn't what we were based around. And when you're fighting a civil war and half the country's enslaved, uh, a portion of half the country's enslaved, and that was fundamental. Uh, the South was still ticked off to agree after the War of 1812. The North didn't really participate much. The country was getting a little divided, getting more and more divided. When it came to slavery, they tried to financially pay uh, the agricultural community off to give up what the price of what it would be to lose this free labor, if I could be so impersonal. It, nothing was working. You had the John Brown insurrection uh, that took place, and the country was coming apart on many issues, but this was the primary issue. And you go back to those times, and you still teach, even though Lincoln was ahead of his time and so many others, uh, when you have all these abolitionists uh, that came forward, like um, like we, we saw with Lloyd Garrison, like we saw with Garrett Smith and others, who battled their life mission was to give freedom for all. That's what our constitution said. That's the Declaration of Independence proclaimed. But we weren't living up to it. It had to be freedom for all. So in order to get this, uh, the original sin off America's resume and into our rearview mirror, we had to fight a war. And in it, we became a more perfect union. So I thought soul would be a good word. Yeah, it's a terrific word. And I'm looking at the the opening chapters of the book for those who are listeners who will get this book and start reading it. What's really striking to me is you go back and you start to tell the story of the early lives of Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass and the title of chapter three, Self-Made Men. Why that title? Why is that so important for understanding Lincoln and Douglass? Well, I mean, today, too. I mean, basically, they had unbelievable obstacles. One year of formal education for Lincoln, less for Frederick Douglass. He had zero. He had to scrap uh, and cheat uh, and look through windows and do chores in exchange for being able to do the white kids' homework in order just to learn the fundamentals of the ABCs, how to read, and most importantly, how to write. Overcoming that, overcoming abject poverty in Lincoln's place, overcoming having zero connections, no political uh, nobody was cutting his path. Having uh, mom die when he was young, Frederick Douglass never really knowing who his dad was, only knowing his mom in maybe three brief meetings. So being raised basically alone in the world, they had to become self-made men. They had to depend on themselves in order to exist. And Lincoln, if he wasn't working, uh, he was reading and he was he became a self-taught lawyer and helping others. So they never stopped working, never stopped striving. And in the end, they reached the top of our country's Hall of Fame list for people. So I just thought that's a great message. You know, what does it take to be successful? Don't tell me what, what you don't have. Tell me what you're going to do. Obviously, we can understand why Frederick Douglass, who had been a slave, as you said, hated slavery. Abraham Lincoln, you talk a little bit about this in the book. Why did he end up having such a loathing and hatred of slavery? Well, I mean... It made no sense to him. I mean, when he was, you'd go down the Mississippi and do it for, for extra money, delivering uh, various packages, he would see it. And he would go visit a friend and he would see a plantation and see slavery. But 
it wasn't something that uh, obsessed him in his life because in the Midwest, it was basically a bunch of pioneers just trying to survive every day, as rugged as it gets, as tough as you had to be. But when he saw it, experienced it, and he had one great line in many, but he said, if anyone thinks slavery is not bad, why don't you try it? So yeah, how many people lined up? How about zero? And then when he has the Johnson debates, he makes it like, how does this make sense? These are other human beings, but he would add lines that make your skin crawl now and say, you know, but we all know white people are smarter. Uh, we're not saying they're equal, but everyone should be free. But he would evolve on that, like all of us evolve in more subtle ways. He would evolve on that too. Why? I mean, the same way Teddy Roosevelt and Booker T. Washington, you meet Booker T. Washington, you don't think I'm smarter than that guy. Benjamin Franklin, maybe the smartest American ever, certainly the most diverse started with slaves he ends up ends up life with abolitionists why because he's observing african-american kids in classrooms and he says there's no difference these kids just need a shot there's no difference between it's all about opportunity it's not about skin color so he learned that in his time and he was the smartest man on the planet and i don't think anyone would argue that so lincoln would gradually change went from colonization we can't live together to Everyone should be free, but we know whites are better too. By the time he ends his life, his life gets ended for him. There's no question he's treating Frederick Douglass as an equal. He's a special guest at a ball. If he thought Frederick Douglass was beneath him, he, he must be a better actor than uh, than Kevin Costner because they they had he must have snowed Frederick Douglass big time because Douglass really worshipped him and admired how many questions he asked of him and saw what a curious mind he had and. And Lincoln told others that he knew that Frederick Douglass was uh, a great leader and was, seemed nervous almost meeting with him. You you mentioned already uh, the, the abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, who was probably the most famous or one of the most famous abolitionists. And you say in the book that when Frederick Douglass escaped from slavery in Maryland, he goes up and he hook, connects with William Lloyd Garrison, his abolitionist circuit. Um, and, you, and you have some, there's a wonderful uh uh, it's like an old drawing in there from a newspaper recounting an episode of how dangerous it was for Frederick Douglass and others to be abolitionist speakers, even in the North. So he's the, many times he'll go to make a speech and there'll be people, rabble rousers who will show up and rush the stage. And, you know, it dates back just according to his biography. So he's 17 years old. And he's told to go work in the field. And it sounds like by his description, he's dehydrated. And they keep whipping him to keep going. And he's lent out to the so-called slave breaker because he was known as a hard guy to deal with. And he's so smart. And this guy, uh, uh, this guy's beating him senseless and he escapes and he just runs and he finds his way through the woods to the guy that basically leased him out and he cooked at him helped him. He says, you got to go back there tomorrow. So sure enough, he goes back there the next day. He goes in there, slides into bed. Well, the guy slides into the raft of a barn and the guy, the slave breaker, Ald, follows him in and he tries beating him up. And Frederick Douglass said, I don't care if I die right now. I'm not taking a backward step. And it sounds like Douglass beat the hell out of him. And this guy, every time he got up, Douglass would pound him back to the ground, take him out, and at the end, the guy didn't tell anyone because he had this reputation as a slave breaker. And Douglas said, for that time on, he never bothered me again. And he vowed he would never take a backward step the rest of his life. 
if challenged, he would fight that challenge. And it was the same way on stage. He would get chased from the stage two or three times, and it would be white guys uh, that would stick up for him. And every time, he would go back to that stage before it ended. You could chase him, you could beat him, and he would go out and he'd come back on because he was going to finish what he had to say. And that was really his message. They saw how tough he was, what a great speaker he was, how coachable he was, how smart he was, how well-read he was. And you're not going to outthink him. You're going to be wowed by how how motivated he is. He takes off his shirt and showed the whip marks. He was an actual slave that escaped. He's clearly a fugitive, could get arrested. And you see throughout the book two or three times where he almost dies. And people standing up for him almost die. It's really interesting to me in, in that relationship that you recount there between Garrison and, and Douglas. And over time, Douglas starts reading things for himself. You mentioned Garrett Smith and some other abolitionists. He starts reading them and starts coming to a conclusion that really breaks with William Lloyd Garrison, who thought that the Constitution was a pro-slavery document. Frederick Douglass seems to come to the conclusion, no, I actually think that the Constitution means what it says and is in favor of freedom and is against slavery. That's a really interesting break. William Lloyd Garrison gave Frederick Douglass a big break. He went to an abolitionist meeting. People were speaking. Douglass was convinced to go up. William Lloyd Garrison watches him and says, you're great. Why don't you work with me? Be a, be a traveling speaker. We're going to rally people around you. Tell your story. And he coaches him. And then he starts writing for him. And he coaches him how to write for the Liberator. Okay, I got it. And after a while, he just doesn't believe that the Constitution had to be torn up. And because this guy's always learning, he's always reading. I think that's another great lesson. Both these men, they never stop. They both read the Columbian Orator, which is a series of mini biographies and essays about great men from Cicero to George Washington. And it would would, uh, electrify his imagination and also let him know that you could become anything in this world, which I also think we can learn from. And he's like, after a while, he's like, you know, I kind of want to do my own newspaper. And I'm not really buying how bad the Constitution is. Garrett Smith, who becomes a fan, writes him, ends up saying, listen, if you do your own newspaper, I'll finance it. And I kind of think the Constitution works. We're just not abiding by it. So I'll support you and I'll help you write. And he does. And he gets his own newspaper going and he becomes a writer, editor, a businessman, which is pretty amazing. You know, this is a couple of years after he escapes to freedom. He becomes a best-selling author, writes his biography, goes overseas, gets so well known, uh, becomes almost a legend in Europe, in uh, Scotland, in Ireland, there's statues for him, and Germany even today, which is now Germany, because that's how great he was and how he, he was treated. So he comes back, and Garrett Smith is more his type guy, and Garrison becomes a bit of a rival the rest of his, uh, the rest of his life, because I think, in my opinion, just judging by what I read, sounds like he's a little mad at him. You know, I found you, I shaped you, you become famous, and you leave me, but they grew apart, and he didn't, he didn't want a boss. Yeah, amazing. The connection then over the 1840s and 50s, as you say, he starts to split from Garrison. That same time you recount in your book, uh, Abraham Lincoln is sort of growing in stature in Illinois politics, serves a term in Congress and becomes sort of more and more convinced. He always thought, as you said, that slavery is wrong. But then he becomes more and more convinced that the expansion of slavery in the Western territories has to be stopped and comes to a conclusion that he might have to join this new thing called the Republican Party. Right. I mean, the way you got to get your mindset around what it was then, you know, we had this little debate. Should we add two states, Puerto Rico? uh, Should we add Puerto Rico as a state? And 
Um, where else we were looking to add another state? Um, People Puerto talk Rico. about Washington D.C. or Guam. Yeah, Washington D.C. So why should those two become states? But back then, the big debate was, well, who's ever in power? Can you do it on reconciliation? Back then, it was, you know, I'm not putting Texas in unless we got another state that size to put in, because Texas is going to be a slave state, need a free state. So it was always this balance. I had to balance it out because we're putting off a problem. We all have that in our lives. Got a major problem in marriage. Got a major problem with a son or daughter. Got a major problem with my job. I'm going to put that off. And that's what we were doing. We were putting off this big reconciliation. Somehow, uh, the rubber's going to hit the road. And we're going to have to fight it out or elect it out. We'll see how it goes. And then after a while, it becomes so clear with the fugitive slave law and the Missouri Compromise, it's not going to work. So that's what led to it. And Lincoln, a thinking guy, evolving guy, became the perfect one to debate Stephen Douglas. And most of the debates were revolve around the free state, slave state issue. And no doubt about it, Stephen Douglas, the senator at the time, who ends up winning because he gets picked by the legislature and wanted to run for president anyway. Uh, he's going for slavery. He has no problem with it. That's the future. It's not going anywhere. And Lincoln would break down that argument. And they would publish all those debates in every newspaper. So whoever, whoever wasn't one of the 50,000 that would show up, there would be tens of thousands who would read in the newspaper. So that's how Lincoln got his name, and that's how he began to grow. It was the issues, the right issues at the right time with the right person. And then he speaks, and this is part of the special too, uh, at Cooper Union, at which time he outlines what a Republican is and what he stands for and the need to get rid of slavery, weaving in Bible verses and being so well-read and understanding his audience. At the end of it, um, Governor Seward, who wanted to be president and would run for president, well, people were done with him. They said, I want to this guy, even though he's in New York. He's like, I'm picking Lincoln. Much more dynamic, much more interesting, much more fascinating. He also did a photo shoot when he got here because he also knew his look wasn't great, but there was a way to take it to make him look presidential. And he found the best photographer and he took it. And then Seward ran against him, ends up being maybe his most loyal cabinet member, uh, was in his ear about getting rid of slavery all the time. And, you know, we went to Union College and they have Seward. Uh, I don't know, Seward Boulevard at Union College, where he actually went to school, dates back to 18, the 1800s. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's right thing at the right time. I, I mean, the most, it's not a worthy example, but the best example of recent is John McCain gets the nomination because he was for the surge in Iraq. Uh, he got the nomination just for that reason, because he's the only guy who was on the right side of it. But by the time he runs for election, the major issue is the crashing economy. No one wants John McCain on the economy, and John McCain dismisses his own ability there. Barack Obama does a better job, right person, right time, because he was heading possibly towards a loss. After all, he said Iraq would never work. He said we never should have went in, and the surge would be a failure. In April, that was right. In November, he was right. Right person, right time, right political climate. And so when he, Lincoln lost that Senate race, but everyone knew, man, this guy's going to be formidable for the presidential race. How does he win? He only gets 40% of the vote because the other bigger candidates cancel each other out and he emerges. You know, and we were just talking about this the other day. Some of our presidents are not meant to be. Teddy Roosevelt was not meant to be president. He wanted to be, but he was a governor that created so much uproar in New York. He reluctantly became vice president. McKinley gets shot. Harry Truman was never going to be president. He was the right person at the right time. He was picked as a throw-in. Didn't even know FDR becomes president, makes the most consequential uh, decisions in our history. 
And then Lincoln, not popular vote, not a history of winning, no heir apparent, right person at the right time. Amazing that he gets in. And once he becomes president, as you say, he seems to kind of evolve during the presidency, Lincoln does, toward a much fuller understanding of equality uh, for everyone, including Black Americans. And it struck me, you, you mentioned um, their personal relationship. And th there's a, just a quick quote from your book. Uh, you, you have in here a, a quote from Frederick Douglass about Abraham Lincoln. And he says, men call Lincoln homely and homely he was, but it was manifestly a human homeliness. Talk about the relationship personally between Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass. Well, Frederick Douglass was upset. He said, this guy got elected. We're, how come we're not free? How come we're not allowed to fight in this war? How come we don't get a uniform? How come we not have officers? You gotta be kidding me. Where's the Emancipation Proclamation? What do you mean in your first inaugural, you were saying, guys, come back, keep your slaves. Let's just get together again. We'll make the 13th Amendment saying you can have slaves. Just don't leave the union. And Frederick Douglass like, is this why I didn't go to Haiti? Is this why I came back? Are you kidding? So he writes some horrible skating articles about what a disappointment gutless guy Lincoln is in his own eloquent way. But Lincoln never responds, but he reads. And by the time he meets Lincoln, and he sees, the minute he sees him, they said, if I could remember correctly, He's so tall, his legs reached into the other room. And I saw every line of the of the pain of the the pain of the war on his face. And I knew right away you could see the goodness in this man. And the first thing he did is greet me with great warmth. And he listened. And he talked about everything. And he goes, immediately I realized I had an ally here, someone I can work with. If I don't agree with I he my word, not his. I got the he's got my respect. And I got his respect. We can work together. And Lincoln was willing to take him on. And he, then he became my friend. He called him Douglas. My friend Douglas. You know, what did you think of my speech on the second inaugural? He goes, it was um, uh, basically, it was a thing of beauty. It was perfect. Why? And not many people liked it. Um, he liked it because they talked about reconciliation. Can you imagine this guy born a slave? Knows exactly where a slaveholder lives. Instead of saying, now I'm free, I'm going to go beat your ass. He talked about the need to put down our guns and come back together. So that's what he wanted the spirit Lincoln wanted to have. He wanted Lincoln to have. Lincoln delivers it. And Lincoln said, you know, it was it was great. Uh, for Douglas said it was great. So people are out there saying, you know, Lincoln said some really weird stuff. Let's take down his statue. Okay. Man of his times, number one. Number two, look at where you tell Frederick Douglass that guy was a racist. Go ahead. Because if he was around today, he got not the Lincoln I knew. What got me in reading it is that uh, how much could we could have avoided a lot of the hell we've been through with the great compromise and segregation, separate but equal. If Lincoln had been able to live through the 1860s, we might not have needed the 1960s. And I said that to you guys in that speech. I really believe it. And why? Because they had a plan. They had a plan to flood the South with teachers and housing. They talked about the transition necessary. Now, would they be able to pull it off? No, these people never wanted to lose the war. They were they were policing in their Confederate uniforms. But you never would have taken the, your thumbs off. You never would have taken the screws off until there was relative peace and security, especially when it comes to voting. But to get Rutherford B. Hayes president, they cut a compromise with the South, who won the Electoral College, but not the popular vote. They were hopelessly deadlocked. They said, listen, what do you need? He goes, I'll, I'll make, make, make it a President Hayes. 
but pull your troops out of the South and just let us be. And sure enough, uh, the troops came, uh, came out, the KKK moved forward, uh, unencumbered. Uh, a lot of these uh, raging lunatics started hanging blacks that they thought were a threat. The Jack, uh, people like Jack Johnson of the world who won a title and date white women and put it in uh, their face. And you saw all this hell. I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened in 1910 if Lincoln had lived to 1880, but man, it would have been a lot less. The transition would have been a lot easier. And we probably would have, the generation would have, we would have saved ourselves two generations of evolving. You, you, you end the book with a beautiful chapter along those theme, along those lines, by talking about Frederick Douglass's speech uh, in 1876 in honor of Abraham Lincoln at the unveiling of the Freedmen's Monument where he talks about Lincoln, it's, it seems like the way you portray it, he's come to have a fuller appreciation of Abraham Lincoln and the, the magnitude of what Lincoln was faced with and the magnitude of what he accomplished. And he even calls him there a statesman. Yeah, I had that memorized. I don't know where my brain's gone, but I'll give you the paraphrase. Essentially, judging Lincoln is 10 years after his death, instead of Grant. Uh, opening up the statue and dedicating the statue. They said, no, let Frederick Douglass do it. So anyone who thinks that I am overstating their relationship and what they meant to each other, tell that to Ulysses S. Grant, okay? Number two, he gave a speech and he said, there's a white America, black America. And he said, you know, it seemed like Lincoln was a white man's president. If he had moved as fast as I wanted, as swift as I preferred, he basically would have had no country. And what he did is move fast enough at the right time because it's a difference between an ad, the president and an activist. You could push, you could prod, you can go. But when you're the leader, you're the leader of everybody. And if he went too fast and said, okay, seven states, you have just left the union. All right, I'm going to free the slaves, going to give them uniforms, going to make them officers, we're going to pay them equal. We're going to make them um, integrate the units if we have to. Let's go. He wouldn't have had a country. Now, you don't want to think that. You think the North was clear-eyed and the South wasn't. That is just not the case. Not everyone in the South believed in slavery, nor did they subscribe to that. Only a third did. And not everybody in the North uh, was, I think we're all equal. Uh, let's go at it. Let's go fight. A lot of people said, no, I'm not fighting for the slaves. But when you fight for the Union, you fight for the Union. What's the fundamental cause? It's slavery. And then it became abundantly clear what this was about. And then they basically explained, guys, Frederick Douglass to, to Lincoln, let me fight for my freedom. And they did. Had he done it right away when Douglass demanded at the time, he would have had no country. In retrospect, he went at the right time, the right way. And it's not even clear if you judge, just judge Lincoln by actions. Forget about what he knew, what he felt. You have to judge Lincoln by actions. And people say, well, he went too slow. But judging by the time as president, he was just right. And some people say, well, he went so slow because he didn't think blacks might be equal. It's not true. And we don't know that. And here's why. Because it doesn't matter what you think. And that's what I hope leaders feel today. It doesn't matter what you think. You represent a country, a whole country. I got to deal with what I have, not what I should have, what I want to have, what I believe I have, what I actually have. And what I had is a bunch of people that wouldn't have fought for slavery. But after a couple of years, they realized there's either good and bad, there's evil and not evil, being enslaved is wrong, and they needed African-Americans to fight, no question. And they were already starting to win, 
You give these African-Americans a uniform best depicted by Denzel Washington in glory. And you see the pride in which the 50 for the pride in which the 54th fought, how they won people over by the valor and trustworthiness and the courage that they displayed. You got rid of generations of misperceptions by white guys fighting with black guys for the right cause. So and then Frederick Douglass put both his sons in the military and they both were at risk fighting in big battles. So and then he was the lead recruiter for it. So he was not a bystander. So think about this. You might not like your country because, I don't know, interest rates are high and not everyone is equal like they should. And maybe there's some bias out there. Well, guys that were actually enslaved put on a uniform and fought for less money were put there as like the Russians do with their soldiers now on the front lines, on the front lines of the front lines to a meat grinder. And they still love the country. They still went out of their way to make sure the flag never touched the ground, even though they're in the middle of a heated battle. So how dare we look around today and say, well, my country doesn't live up to me. How dare you look back at what we went through to get here. Don't disrespect the past, black, white, Asian, all the way through. So that I just have no patience for people that that want to put down a country that uh, is less than perfect. But if you don't believe it's the best country, I have a news for you. You need to travel. And if you travel and find a better place, please stay. Because my sense is you, you're probably never going to appreciate it. But most people, when they travel, come back and say, wow, got it pretty good. Yeah, it's amazing the, the, what you make clear in the book, that these two great men and these two great leaders really did have that same common view of America, that we were founded on principles of freedom and that it's our struggle is to live up to those principles that we inherited from our founding, and they really did share that basic good view of America. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, they, they looked up, to, can you imagine this? They looked up to the founding fathers. Nobody's perfect. We know about uh, Jefferson. You know, I'm pretty sure Washington, if you look back when he made some of the decisions he made as a general, they weren't the best. But he evolved, he grew, he stood up for this ideal. He was willing to put himself out there flip over the back of his baseball card and said, I'll be judged by whether I win or lose. And instead he delivered a country and he died worshiped by many and the number one enemy of the British, even today. They said out of all the enemies that you've had, including Hitler and Mussolini, they said it's Washington, the most formidable. So we've got, I'm sure there's so many questions from our listeners, but let me ask you one of them. In, in putting this book together and thinking through these two great men, What's the most surprising thing that you learned about Lincoln or Douglas or both? The practicality of both of them. They, you know, Frederick Douglass is not my way or the highway. So if you're out there and you're, you're saying racist things, acting racist, well, what can I, what can you do with me? Oh, you look at me as less than you? Okay, okay, fine. Yeah, but what can you do for me? Oh, you can provide a stage for me. I can speak in front of your guys. Uh, I would be able to buy a house from you in Rochester. That's fine. So you could have your biased views and whatever. I'm not going to judge you. Well, what can I do with you? And move on. Tough guy, no doubt about it. I did not realize, I mean, I would love to hear, and they say there's audio recordings out there. They say he's half MLK and half Muhammad Ali because he was provocative. He was sarcastic. He was funny. He was knowledgeable. No two speeches were the same. He would command a stage and he'd look fantastic and always made sure there were pictures taken of him and, always dressed to the nines with his hair perfect. So all that stuff in presentation, you realize even back then mattered. So if you're not going to like me, you know, it's not going to be because some stereotype of that you might 
think before you see me. You're going to see me. I'm going to I'm going to make you rewrite all your thoughts. And then to see the fact that, you know, Lincoln loses his mom. He really didn't even go to his dad's funeral. Did not know his bouts with depression were so strong and losing two kids. I mean, it's unbelievable what they went through. And I can't find a moment where they're looking, they were feeling bad for themselves. They were just trying to do better for themselves and for the country. So I'm pretty much, you know, I think just think people got to read about these guys, guys like this, women like Susan B. Anthony and others who overcame all types of travails. And not saying you ever have to live up to them because these are Hall of Fame people. But just know as you get hit, you get hit with obstacles and you don't get into that college you want. You didn't get the house you wanted. You know, you had trouble with the relationship. You never got to marry the person uh, and uh, the first one maybe you had in mind. All these things that happen, if you sadly had tragedy in your life, people have died. Okay, part of the process. Look to people like this for resources. How'd they get through? And by the way, can they, there's an infra, there was no infrastructure. So when you lose a parent, there's no social security coming in. Dad goes, disappears, leaves him and his sister, goes to get another wife, leaves him in the winter with some food, and he's gone. Comes back with another woman. Good thing you picked the right woman who was pro-education and really helped Lincoln. But for a while, they thought they were going to starve to death. So I'm not saying you have to have it as bad as Lincoln and Douglas. But before you say life's against me, look at the cards they were dealt and look at what they did with them. Um, as you know, the mission of the Ashbrook Center is to do what you're doing. We, we're, we share that same mission to educate Americans in the history and principles of our country. Um why is that work? You've devoted now so much of your time and energy, which is so valuable, to writing these works of history. Why is it so important to you to educate Americans in our history and principles? I kind of stumbled into it in that I had this fascination with the George, George Washington spies for 20 years. Bill O'Reilly wrote these history books, and he was telling him in a way, I'm like, wow, Lincoln assassination again. I read them, and they're great, and they're accessible. So I told Bill about this book and he said, yeah, do it. So I thought, you know, if, even if it sells some, I'll be able to, I know people will do this as a movie. They did the Patriot. They did national treasure. And I thought, you know, even if I sell a handful of books, it will be fun to go do this. And I approached it like a story. Next thing you know, by the time the next one comes out, there's a war on history. There's a war on our past. We overstated it. It's 1619. It's not 1776. We're never that great. Really? Then people, you know, the Iraq war doesn't go like we thought. People start hating our country, misperceiving what we were there for, able to spin it negatively. Uh, and now I feel like it's a mission. So I always get people online, people like, yeah, listen, I like you on TV, but you've overstated this. I'm like, no, no, I haven't overstated anything. These are quotes from people who lived in that day. So now I feel like when I go to do a stage show, which I've arranged, I'm able to talk about all my books in a red, white, and blue way but not in a comic, uh, a, a cartoon way. Tell you, I'm not saying they're perfect people, but without what they did, we wouldn't have the country that we have. And that's why I think it's almost a mission at this point, because there's the Nicole Hannah-Jones out there, because of the George Soros trying to take our country apart with his money, uh, because the people are watching 4 million people sneak into our country who really are just looking to further themselves, not make the country better. So now I feel like when these books come out and I do this research, I'm pushing back against the tide. Well, you, you, this book, The President and the Freedom Fighter, I know those of our listeners who don't have it are going to absolutely want to go out and get it. It's a terrific book. 
our listeners and others out there are going to want to know, okay, what's Brian Kilmeade's next project? I'm working on uh, Booker T and, T and TR. Um, and the way TR and Booker T also overcame horrendous upbringings, even though TR had money, as you know, he also had uh, such bad asthma, he couldn't go to school. They thought he was going to die as a kid. Uh, the physicality, he, he was like a rail. Instead, he was just determined to build himself up and matter. And what he was able to do with a lot of critics, I think he's been written about, but also what he's done on race, moving our moving our uh, our country forward, even though his mom had roots in the South, whose, whose brothers fought for the Confederacy. He, he was, was able to see the greatness of Booker T. Washington when he does Tuskegee. What he did, what he was able to dispel on race and made him a key advisor at a time in which blacks weren't even welcome into the White House. He had dinner with him, invited for the first one to invite Booker T, uh, an African-American to dinner, got backlash for it. But basically, Booker T became his key South advisor and helped name judges and poor guards, port guards and everything. And I thought if I tell that story, that'll give you additional perspective on how great Americans made America uh, better and better. Terrific. We'll look forward to getting that when it comes out. Brian Kilmeade, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on The American Idea. Uh, thanks for asking me. Appreciate it. I'll talk to you guys soon. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The American Idea. If you enjoyed this episode, Remember to subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a five-star review. If you want to learn more or get involved in Ashbrook's vital work, visit our website, ashbrook.org.